All right, reading from Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. Not all of each chapter, but selected portions. And if I get my notes out here, I'll know what we're doing. All right, chapter 8, starting with verse 27. Noah will be reading. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do you... Do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should not tell no that they should tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke his, this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words will in this adulterous and sinful generation of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then jumping ahead to Mark 9, verses 30 to 37. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And they... And he did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum and asked him. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. 
And they sat down, called the twelve, twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last, all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst, midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, and then Mark 10, starting with verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And they took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him. Saying, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, they shall scourge him, they shall spit upon him, they shall kill him, and on the third day he shall rise. And continue in verse 35. Then James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for, for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it, sh it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be in the Lord's house once again. Good to be before the word. This morning we're going to do something a bit differently. Instead of walking through a particular piece of scripture, like we typically do, we're going to take some pieces here from Mark's gospel, which I've grown to appreciate and love uh, a lot over this last year. And uh, we're going to look at 
really in just thinking about a, a subtitle for, for where we're going and, and what we're working on here in the text. would like for us to help us to see how we can connect a right answer with a right way of living. A right answer with a right way of living. We're going to see in the text as we begin here in just a moment, we're going to begin in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin things there in verse 27. So you can hold that. We'll get to that in just one moment. As Mark alluded to earlier today, today is oftentimes referred to as Palm Sunday, the day that that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. People lined the streets and they laid out branches and clothes on the road and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, Mark 11, 9 through 11, 9 and 10 read. It's important for us to understand that this particular day comes just four days from the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples. Just four days prior to his late night arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Five days prior to his illegal trials and eventual death on the cross. The cheering crowds that accompanied Jesus into Jerusalem were about to change their cry in just a few short days. Those chants of crucify him, crucify him, would replace Hosanna in the highest. This day is oftentimes referred to as a, the day of the triumphal entry. And so it was. For, for Jesus was about to finish the work the Father had given for, for him to accomplish. He was about to triumph over death and sin. Emmanuel, God with us, riding on a donkey, entering Jerusalem, understanding full well the saying of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Lamb of God is coming to town. He's about to take up his cross. The sinless Son of God, the one who became sin for us. He's riding into Jerusalem with a cross on his mind. He has reconciliation work to complete. And this he would do, Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, through the body of his flesh, through death. The glamorized version of Palm Sunday it's not appropriate to make Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem into some happy, festive event, an event absent of what is yet to come just a few short days later. We miss the point if we disconnect the triumphal entry from what's about to happen a few days later. Knowing the whole story, we as believers in Jesus, as Christ followers, do understand that it is a triumphal entry. We do understand that because of what Christ did at the cross, it is good news. 
And it's truly a good Friday that we celebrate. To see someone other than the Lamb of God riding on that donkey as a sheep being led to the slaughter. Do you see what's about to happen here? The time has come for the Christ to put on display the full extent of his love. Just before this particular Sunday, not too far in advance of this Palm Sunday ride into Jerusalem, Jesus is found teaching his disciples of what is yet to come. These men had been followers of Jesus for some time now. They had seen the great teacher at work, the healer, the one who cast out demons, the one who calmed the wind and the waves, the one who provided bread and fish for thousands, the one who made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And over time, the disciples were able to see that firsthand. With Jesus, all things do seem to be possible. A few weeks ago, we were in Mark chapter 5. Today, I want to fast forward to Mark chapter 8. and We'll be looking at portions of text in Mark 8, 9, and 10. Just as a reference point, Mark chapter 11 is the triumphal entry. Okay? So we're not too far removed from that Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 8 serves as the halfway point in Mark's gospel. And it also serves as a hinge point for the ministry of Jesus. Up until this time, the disciples had seen him perform many miracles, but they had yet to fully put their trust in him as the Son of God, sent from the Father. Up to this point, Jesus is still a wild card of sorts. Who can this be? They said at the end of chapter 4, remember? They're in the boat. Who can this be that even the the, the sea and the The wind obey him. Jesus to his disciples, to his own followers, is still an uncertainty, somewhat of a mystery. They're following him, yes, they're doing that. But they've not been able to identify him as Jesus the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. fact, in Mark's gospel, only Mark himself, if you flip back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark, the writer carried along by the Holy Spirit, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark rightly identifies him right out of the gate in this gospel. And do you know there's someone else, someone's else, plural, who also has been able to correctly identify Jesus? That's the demons. The demons have been able to correctly identify this Jesus. Look, if you will, at Mark chapter 8. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. 
Who do men say that Jesus is? If we took time today and went around and asked you that question, I'm sure you could come up with some answers to that question. Who do men say that Jesus is? You've probably heard a few stories from folks that you've talked with, how they view Jesus, how they would define Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? They're two different questions. You see, some of you here have been proclaiming an allegiance with Jesus for some time now. Not too much unlike these disciples that we're reading about. You've been following him, but I would ask for what reason? For what purpose? Who do you say this man Jesus is? That's a question I believe would be good for you to take some time to figure that out. Who is this man Jesus? You know, some of you here, I was thinking of some of you older ones who are in college. Some of you here are drawing near to final exams. It's good that you can smile about that. You've been at work studying this whole semester. You've read lots of materials. You've heard many lectures. You've sat in on a multitude of labs, perhaps, depending upon your classwork. And the day is coming when you're going to be asked the question, what did you learn? What did you learn? Show me what you learned. Write a paper, perhaps, describing what you learned. You see, the final exam of the disciples had arrived. Don't you find it much easier to answer the question from a third-party perspective? Who do men say that I am? But when the question comes close, and it's your turn to answer the question, what are you going to say? You know, I was reminded, many of you probably have been in a similar situation, but been in, ever been in a large group setting where one of the first things they do is they go around the circle and, and you have to introduce yourself. Stand and introduce yourself. Tell something about you. Tell where you're from. Maybe tell what you do for a living. Those kinds of things. Okay? How many of you, assuming that you don't have to go first, are stressing out about what to say how to say it, how much to say. How many of you are more concerned about not embarrassing yourself in what you say versus actually having to introduce yourself? As it gets closer to being your turn to stand and speak, your stomach starts to churn within you because you too must shortly stand and identify yourself to this group. Now, if you have trouble identifying yourself in such a situation, imagine how much more of a challenge it might have been for the disciples. They're walking along the road with Jesus, and he asks the first question. And many of them chime in with an answer. Freely chime in, I believe, with an answer. I imagine... There was some silence between their answers and Jesus' next question. 
And then the second question comes. The final exam is given along the road. Jesus is asking them, but, but who do you say that I am? And you get the idea as Jesus is walking in front of them, that the others behind, when they heard the question, you could sense this collective gulp, this feign of a cough. <clears throat> Maybe one of them stooped down to the ground to retie their sandal. Stall for time. Made sure they didn't make eye contact with them. Find something to stall for time. And then the text says, Peter answered. And I imagine the other disciples really liked having Peter around for times like these. I do. Once Peter answered, the others perhaps breathed a collective sigh of relief. Think about that. You are the Christ, is what they heard. And notice Jesus doesn't press the answer that's given. He simply, according to Mark 8.30, he warns them not to tell anyone about his identity. No further questions. But Jesus is not quite done. I believe what Jesus does in Mark 8.31 comes in light of the answer to his second question. But I believe that he's not sufficiently convinced of the answer in verse 29. And herein lies a significant point for each one of you to consider. How often do you give a right answer and yet still have no idea what you're talking about? Perhaps some of you have been content allowing someone else define Christ for you. Oh, we could just go down the list of, of different ways that might occur. Maybe you have a favorite author that you read. Maybe you have a favorite preacher that you listen to. Technology is a wonderful thing. We get to hear the word preached. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a radio personality. Maybe it's a blog writer. You can come up with your own list. Have you allowed someone, have you been content with someone else defining the Christ for you? You've got a right answer, but you have no idea what you're talking about. The sad part is, you know deep down, you don't know what you're talking about. But you're content, continuing on as a follower of Jesus, holding on to the coattails of what someone else and how someone else has defined this Christ. These right answers... It also comes into play as we're talking to other people about Jesus. You know, see, as a follower of Jesus, we're going to talk a lot about following Jesus. 
Is it possible that you've simply given right answers to questions people ask about Jesus? Do, do right answers equate to right living? Do your right answers coincide with right walking? You see, I believe that the context shows us that Jesus is not satisfied with Peter's right answer. The declaration that Jesus is the Christ is good. It sure beats many of the other answers given by other men to this point. The question, though, from the text is this. When Peter answers Jesus by saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, what does he really mean by that? What is Peter's idea of the Christ? What in in Peter's mind characterizes this Christ? And ultimately, what is the objective of Peter's Christ? Is he a Christ that has come to serve and die and rise again? Or is this Christ of Peter the one who has come to overthrow, rule, and reign in light of an oppressive Roman government? You see, the right answer may be a good starting point, but it can be misleading if not pursued a bit further. It's like someone who says, I believe in God. Praise the Lord you believe in God. Let's get more clear now. Because even the demons believe in God. Let's, get, let's, let's pare that down a little bit. What about Jesus? Let's answer the question, what about Jesus? Who's Jesus? Can we identify Jesus? And we're going to see the connect between having a right answer today and how that is intended biblically to get played out in right living. Because you see, once you understand who Jesus is, and you understand where he went, you then are going to not only be able to properly identify him, but now you're going to be able to truly be able to follow him. The implications here are huge, church. Mark 8, 31 and 32. The text says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, That's the Sanhedrin, the governing body, right? And be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Now, here's what we need to understand. School is not done for the disciples. Jesus is now going to teach them about what must, that's key, what must happen to him. This is not open for discussion. This is what must happen. Remember just a moment ago, the question was centered on who he was. And Peter said, you're the Christ. And now Jesus is teaching them. He does this specifically on three recorded occasions in Matthew, Mark, Luke. All three of those Gospels give three occasions where Jesus is teaching this very thing of what is yet to come. It's interesting that three separate accounts are given of Jesus teaching his disciples what must happen. See, I believe... In part, he, he doesn't want there to be any surprises about this. Nor does he want this event to be kept to himself alone. And teaching his disciples about his sufferings yet to come would be significant. You see, not only to help them deal with the cross that was just but a few days away, but also to help them walk in the days ahead as a genuine Christ follower. See, I think, I think sometimes we forget that. It's not just about the fact that I'm going to die in a few days. But let's take it a step further. He's going to die. He's no longer going to be there. Yes, he's going to have another counselor, the Holy Spirit who's going to dwell within them forever. But now they're going to be on their own. Their rabbi is not going to be there to follow. 
So what's at stake here in Mark 8, 9, and 10 is much more than identifying Jesus properly, albeit that is significant and necessary in and of itself. Okay? Mark is pointing out that a right identification of the Christ is connected to a right identification of what it means to be a follower of the Christ. To know the Christ and to know what he must go through is critical for a disciple of Jesus. One writer says this. He says, this section of text, talking about Mark 8, 9, 10, teaches that a proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. When believers profess who Jesus is, they also and inevitably confess what they must become. Jesus is not an objective datum, a piece of information like a rock under a microscope that can be observed and examined in supposed neutrality. The statement, you are the Christ, imposes a claim on the one who says it. The Son of Man calls those who would know him to follow him. You know, and I, I was reading that and I was reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice it doesn't say, but he who gets the right answer. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Is it possible you can have the right answer and still not know him? He not know you? There's three recurring themes here in Mark 8, 9, and 10. Jesus must suffer. Jesus be killed. And he's going to rise. Okay, those three pieces are there. Why don't you jot those down? Those are important. Those are very significant. To call Jesus the Christ has certain implications. Declaring that Jesus is the Christ must align with what Jesus says. Okay? It must coincide with God the Father's purpose in sending his Son. Who does Jesus say that he is? Let's change the question. Who does Jesus say that he is? Well, the Bible gives us many pictures of that. In fact, if you read John's gospel, you'll get a pretty thorough understanding of that question. How about, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door or the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth and the life, for starters. Who does God say that Jesus is? Well, Mark's gospel, chapter 9, verse 7, transfiguration. God says, this is my beloved son. Hear Him. Who do you say that Jesus is, church? I encourage you to take your answer and look carefully in light of how Jesus identifies himself and his purpose. Check your answer out in light of how God identifies this Christ. Make sure, foundationally, make sure you have the right answer. Then make sure your right answer is explainable in light of what this word says. Make sure your right answer penetrates the heart, saturates the mind, 
unlocks your hands and your mouth and your feet that they may all function collectively toward living out this right answer. At this point in his ministry, Jesus spoke this word openly, the text says. Another translation would be plainly. The word is parousia, which in John's gospel, that word parousia often refers to Jesus' bold disclosure of his purpose, of why he came and what he's about to do. But that this word appears only here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And ironically, only in connection with impending suffering. This writer says, Peter has called Jesus Messiah. And Jesus now begins to explain what it means. He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus doesn't argue with them. Jesus simply further explains what that means. I love that about Jesus. He very easily could have said, Peter, and he could have, because Jesus, you know, elsewhere in the Gospels, doesn't he read the heart, read the mind, and he knows what people are thinking? He could have said, Peter, you have no idea what you're talking about, man. He could have. He didn't say that, though. He left the answer as it was and then went on to explain and give further information, further detail, further picture of what that means, you are the Christ. See, he wants to help Peter understand that your answer of Christ, it's a good starter. Let me fill in the blanks on what that is, what that means. So he goes on, he's teaching about what that is all about. This writer says that the explanation results in bewilderment and dismay, not only because of its implications for Messiahship, what it means to be Christ, but equally because of its implications for discipleship. Look at what happens next in the text. And by the way, we're we're piecing some of this together. We're not walking through all of it. I know I'm leaving out some things, but there are three accounts here that I want to look at in Mark 8, 9, and 10, and they all have to do with Jesus teaching his disciples about what's yet to come. So, This is going to be a familiar theme, what happens next, starting in verse 32. Notice that, I want you to notice what happens in all three of these accounts we'll read in Mark 8, 9, and 10. Following the teaching of Jesus on what's going to happen to him, I want you to notice, take take note of what happens immediately afterwards, okay, in each of these three accounts. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. You see, the very fact that Peter rebukes Jesus, it's evident, evidence that Peter's confession, you are the Christ, is not entirely complete. (laughs) Right? Think about it. It serves evidence that Peter perhaps had a different definition of who the Christ is. It magnifies some, some missing pieces in Peter's Christ's. For Peter, his Christ was seemingly absent of dying. Jesus says that he must suffer many things and that he would be killed. Those things weren't on the agenda for Peter's Christ, it seems. When writer says, unknowingly, the disciples were trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross and thus fulfilling his mission on earth. The disciples were motivated by love and admiration for Jesus. Nevertheless, listen to this. Their job was not to guide and protect Jesus, but to follow him. Not guide and protect Jesus. 
Church, this is us today. That's not our job. Our job is to do what? Follow. Follow. It becomes clear in verse 33 that much teaching is still needed to help Jesus' disciples understand his identity and purpose for coming to earth. It is also clear, becomes clear, reading verse 33, that much teaching is still needed to help his disciples understand who they are in Christ. Time is short. He's going to the cross and his disciples will be left behind. The implications of correctly identifying the Christ correspond to walking rightly after this Christ. See, because this Christ must suffer many things. This Christ must die. This Christ will rise again after three days. These things are taught by Jesus. This life of Jesus would serve as a pattern for those who would follow. So to be a follower of Jesus would include suffering. It would include dying, perhaps for his sake. Mark 8.34 says when he had called the people to himself. So now he's, he's on the road and he's calling other people unto himself along with the disciples. And he said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So with the people gathered around, his disciples nearby, Jesus offers the wide open invitation of whoever. Whoever. Or another translation might be, if anyone. Whoever desires to come after or pursue me. If you're going to follow after me, let him first deny himself. Lose your own agendas. Lose your own definitions of who you think I am. Lose your own way of doing things. Surrender them to my will now. And then he says this. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross. Historically, it's important what's happening at the time of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel Somewhere in the early mid-60s, perhaps it was written as a general time frame. And as we think about and consider who was reigning in Rome over that period, we know that uh, Nero was reigning in Rome. Let's not forget who the Jews were accountable to during this period of time. At the time of Mark's writing, Nero is most likely the Roman emperor. He's young, he's foolish, he's perverse and wicked. In fact, the marks of his reign are often threefold. He killed his mother. The fire at Rome and his brutal treatment of Christians. In fact, Peter and Paul perhaps lost their lives under the reign of Nero You see, these followers of the way, they were easy targets for a man like Nero. Why? I believe because it was so easy to see that their allegiance, talking about the followers of the way, their allegiance was to this man named Jesus, this man who was crucified on the cross. 
It was evident. It was obvious. These people were following Jesus. It's significant that Jesus includes a cross for those who would follow him. Mark's readers would have understood a cross. They would have seen a cross. They would have witnessed perhaps a death on a cross. It was a modern day form of execution. It was reserved for the lowest of slaves and criminals and and men who dared to subvert the rule of Rome. To hear from Jesus what it means to follow him, that it includes taking up your own cross? A cross was used for a particular purpose in the first century. Death. To carry your cross meant that you were about to die. Some 2,000 years removed from the cross of Christ, it's perhaps hard to imagine what it means to take up your cross as a follower of Jesus. And yet the cross served as the form of execution used to kill Jesus. You know, Jewish law passed the sentence of death, but only the Roman authorities could carry out that death sentence of crucifixion. Thus, we'll see here in just a moment, handing them over to the Gentiles. Jesus speaks of that. So we need to understand that historically that the cross has an active meaning when Mark writes. Very active meaning. And here in Mark 8.34, Jesus is connecting who he is, the Christ, and showing then what it looks like for someone to follow him. It involves denying self and taking up a cross. And I believe that Peter's Christ looked much differently. And perhaps your Christ has been absent of a cross too. And yet Jesus is teaching and he desires for his followers to understand what's at stake. Turn to Mark 9. Look at verse 30, 32. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For he taught, there it is again, he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. Second round of teaching concerning what is to come. A second round of teaching concerning what must happen. A second dose of teaching to help his disciples understand who they were following and the implications for what lies ahead for them. We fast forward into John's gospel and we see just glimpses of what Jesus is talking about. He says, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. See, to follow Jesus, that's going to happen. The world's going to hate you. John 16, 2 and 3, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they've not known me, the Father, or me. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be shunned. You're going to be pushed aside. At the end of John 16, verse 32, indeed the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. 
See, there's going to be a pivotal point in time, Jesus says, when I'm going to go to the cross. In fact, as we read Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. This is the last time they passed through Galilee. Mark 9. Look at what the text says in Mark 9, 32. It says, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. If you go back to Mark 8, 21, you see about the, the fish and the loaves and they're, they're, they're all confused about this leaven and what Jesus is talking about, right? And, and he rebukes them pretty sternly there in 17, 18, 19. And then in 21, he says to them, how is it you do not understand? They didn't understand what he was saying here in Mark 9 either. And yet look at what Mark 9, 33 to 37 says. Look at what the disciples are doing following round two of Jesus' teaching on what is yet to come. Then he came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. Self-indictment. They kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Who would be the greatest? And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me me so Jesus unveils their traveling conversation as they make their way to Capernaum the silence of the disciples here sign of their guilt caught in the act the text says they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest Jesus is teaching them about where he's going providing a correct understanding of who this Christ is and yet the disciples are found arguing and jockeying for position. They want to be great. To help them see what greatness means, he simply takes a little child in his arms and says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. The writer says here, at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. The challenge is to be great in the things that matter to God. Greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and privileged. Rather, it presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. Service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. And we'll see this later in Mark chapter 10. The writer goes on and says the conclusion Jesus draws from the child in his arms is subtle and surprising. The child is not primarily used as an example of humility, but as an example of the little and insignificant ones whom followers of Jesus are to receive. Disciples are thus not to be like children, but to be like Jesus who embraces them. It is Jesus, not the child, who here demonstrates what it means to be the servant of all.
turn to Mark 10. Context leading up to where we're going to be in verses 17 through 31, the story of the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks what he needs to do that he would inherit eternal life. Remember that? Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come take up your cross. There's that phrase, you can underline that. Take up your cross and follow me. The scripture says he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Do do you see? And if you read 8, 9, and 10 together, you start to see with clear eyes. (laughs) Jesus in the picture that he's painting about what it means, not only to identify rightly the Christ, but also what it means to follow this Christ. Okay, so for the rich man, it had to do with his riches. The fishermen, they're in their boats, in their nets, and they leave that to follow. Levi, he was at his tax collector's office. He left it to follow Jesus. So thinking about for you in particular here this morning, what would he have you get in order? He's addressing what it means to follow after him. And once again, he tells this rich man to take up his cross. Get this. He points him to an action that will result in storing up treasure in heaven. Jesus, you see, understands. And we see that in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus understands that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, this week I finished up my taxes. This is the first year in like forever when I've gotten it done before the deadline. Okay, you're laughing, so that means some of you also do the deadline thing. I, I finished them up this week. I was, I was excited about that. And it served as a, you know, a great reminder to me once again of where my treasure is and, and pointed me once again to, to reevaluate priorities in light of being a follower of Christ. You see, seeing how you spend your money how you save your money, how you invest your money, how you spend your time over the last year. Is money the one thing that has a hold on you? Does it have a hold on you? Money? Would Jesus point to money as the stumbling block for your following? Perhaps it's not money for you. So if it's not money, what is it? What is that one thing maybe that's lacking in your life, keeping you at a distance from this Christ, keeping you from following this Christ as described in the Scripture? Look at Mark 10, 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Going up to Jerusalem. I love that phrase. And Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the 12 aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now this is the third specific teaching of what is yet to come for this one Peter deemed to be the Christ. This is the most detailed account of the three. Provides us a location. Jerusalem. They're going to Jerusalem. That's where they're going. Okay? Provides the manner of how Jesus is leading. I love this. Don't miss this. They're going up to Jerusalem, but the text says Jesus was going before them. Now, it's true that a rabbi oftentimes would lead the disciples and walk ahead. 
But I believe on this occasion it's much different. The picture that I believe Mark wants to see is much different. Not simply a rabbi leading the way. No, no. This is a picture of the Lamb of God heading toward Jerusalem, leading the way, understanding the cross set before him. I love the picture. Jesus is leading the way, going to Jerusalem. This text also shows us how the betrayal would take place. We know a man named Judas is going to betray Jesus to the chief priests and to the scribes who then are going to condemn him to death, who then are going to hand him over to Pilate, to the Roman authorities. And then we get specifics of the sufferings. They're going to mock him. They're going to scourge him. They're going to spit on him. And they're going to kill him. Church, you can look these up in the Gospels. What Jesus is saying is going to happen, happen. Why the need to teach this on three separate occasions? Why does Jesus feel the need to repeat such a teaching time and again to his disciples? The text leads you to believe that they're still afraid and lacked understanding. Thus, the need for additional teaching. I get that. I see that in the text. I wonder, though, if Jesus is actually helping his followers return to the very thing that characterizes their following, the very thing that marks them as a Christ follower, the very thing that is central to their right walking in the days ahead. I wonder if he's pointing them deliberately to gaze upon the path to the cross, to see that the cross-bearing life is the way of a Christ follower. Oh, I was reminded of the wonderful text in Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He wasn't trying to be great while he was here. He wasn't striving for a seat, a position taking the form of a bondservant, in fact, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The one you follow went to the cross. That's where he went. He went to the cross. And this week, the world will recognize this event on the calendar. It's called Good Friday. For many, it will simply be a day off work. For those who follow Jesus, it's a potent reminder of the victory that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a reminder of the kind of life that we too, as a follower, are called to live out. It's a reminder that three days later, he didn't stay dead, but he was raised to life. It's a reminder that being raised to life, and we'll talk about this more next week, 
that now, right now, while we're here, in this short period of time, this little blip on the time scale that we have, we're but a mist and we're gone. But while we're here, we too can live out a new life. We are a new creation in Christ because of the cross, because of the empty grave. It is a good Friday. There's a postlude to this in verses 35 to 45. Because I want you to see that even after this third teaching, I want you to notice what the disciples are doing. James and John are found asking Jesus a question. 